Let's open our Bibles to Zechariah, chapter 8, which we did not make all the way through on Wednesday. We'll come back to it this coming Wednesday. And picking up in verse 20, where Paul read for us earlier. I've entitled the message this morning, Religion versus Christianity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts, and I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. As we look at um, uh, this uh, last prophetic book before uh, the book of uh, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we're almost through, um, we find that uh, Zechariah is divided into three different sections. If you're taking notes this morning, chapters 1 through 6, uh, Zechariah is there. Um, he had in one day received ten visions, all in the same day. But chapters 1 through 6 are being given to the people while the city and the wall is being built. And then, skipping for a moment, 7 and 8, we have chapters 9 through 14, which is a continuation of more visions, Um, probably the most familiar one here that would speak to yet future would be uh, in Zechariah 9, where your king comes slowly and humbly sitting on a colt of an ass or a little donkey. And of course, that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. So chapters 9 through 14 are given to Zechariah, but this is after now the temple has been built. And what we have in 7 and 8, we begin to see a pattern that develops as we make our way through Zechariah. 7 and 8 is different um, in that it is sort of a slice of life of the attitude of the people that have come back from Babylon. And what we're going to learn this morning is that all of them went to Jerusalem. This group of people that we're going to talk about here actually are in Bethel, and they have some questions concerning fasting, and they come down to Jerusalem. So 7 and 8, 7 is a chapter of a very strong rebuke. And chapter 8, we're in here, is one of comfort, consolation, and hope, And it's all about the kingdom. But if maybe you're just joining us, I'm going to just do a real quick review to show you the pattern that is consistent through all the major and minor prophets with double prophecies. Applying locally to the people that were being ministered to by Zechariah, the captives, but also in it, he will jump into the future and talk about the Great Tribulation. He will talk about, like I just mentioned, Zechariah 9, the ministry during Jesus' day. And then also, and primarily more than anything else, the coming kingdom. We call it the millennium. 
They call it the kingdom age. If you just flip back to chapter 2 for an example of this, we've been doing this in chapter 2, 10 through 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations will be joined uh, to the Lord in that day and they will become my people and I will dwell in their midst. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will take possession of Judah and as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. And here we have a prophecy, clearly talking about Jesus ruling and reigning during the kingdom age. If you turn the page to chapter 3 and look at verse 8, we have a prophecy that says here, O Joshua, now Joshua would have been the high priest, and I'm going to make mention of him in just a minute. Remember here, the temple was not yet built, but they had a high priest. So uh, here, Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I will Bring forth my servant, the branch. Capital letters. A little vague here, but if you go to chapter um, 6 and look at verse 12, it brings more clarity to what's being said here. In verse 12, behold, the man whose name is the branch, again, capital letters, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. He shall Bear the glory, and he shall shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Clearly, the branch is simply another name uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's a good shepherd. He's the door. Many different titles attributed to him. The word of God. But in Zechariah, he's referred to as the branch. All right, if we look at uh, chapter 4, here's probably the best example of a double prophecy. Here Zechariah is shown a golden lampstand and two olive trees. And in verse 6, he's addressing um, Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel um, would have been one of the people used by the Lord to encourage this group of discouraged people. And he tells them how he's going to do it. He says, it's not going to be by you, Zerubbabel. Uh, It's not going to be by your might or by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? So clearly the prophecy here is twofold. Zerubbabel, a civil encourager, but also Joshua, the high priest who would have been Uh, the religious leader at the time. And nothing is going to stop the work from being done. A mountain represents opposition, obstacles. And when we studied this verse by verse, I took you and introduced you to two guys named Shambhalat and Tobiah. And their whole job was just to, to try to get these guys to stop the work, to discourage them. Um, then we have, um, uh, we went through chapter 6. That brings us to now this sort of the 7 and 8 is um, the theme here 
is a historic interlude questioning. They have questions concerning religious rituals. In this case, it's fasting. Uh, they're given a threefold answer. When the heart is right, the ritual is right. When the heart is wrong, the ritual is wrong. If you look at the very first verse of chapter 7, it dates the book for us. It tells us in the fourth year of King Darius. And then it gives us a day and a month. If I would translate that so that we could understand it, it would be December 4th, 1518. So now we know basically the time frame where this book is being um, written. Chapter 7. Let me lay out where I'd like to go this morning as I thought about it uh, this week. This morning I'd like to look at how the Word of God deals with rebuke and correction with his people. And the difference between religion and rituals and biblical Christianity. Um, I've, all of you have run into people and, and you start talking with them or sharing with them. And uh, once they realize that you're getting around to Jesus, sometimes I've had people say to me, well, I'm not religious. And I say, me either. And then I really blow their mind and I say, I hate religion. And they, well, I thought you were supposed to be a pastor. Yeah, I am, and I hate religion. And, uh, but I love Jesus, and I love the Word of God. And it's a curveball to them. They, they can't wrap, quite wrap their head around what I just said. And to go farther, I said, how about this? I agree with Joseph Stalin that religion is the opiate of the people. Now, some of you may not have heard that quote, but that comes from Joseph Stalin. It's the opiate of the people. They're, they're addicted to religion. Well, now we have to have some defining terms. What are we talking about? What is religion and what is biblical Christianity? Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God through rituals, good works, added doctrines, such as the sacraments, infant baptism, adding to what we do so that when God looks at us, look what I have done, Lord, for you. That's religion, man's attempt. And But biblical Christianity is just the opposite. Instead of us reaching up to God, biblical Christianity is God reaching down to man with the finished work of Jesus Christ dying on Calvary's cross. And he said, it is finished. He meant what? It is finished. And we've been justified, like we sang that song this morning. Just as though I've never sinned. It has nothing to do with me. My, salva- my salvation is completely dependent on accepting or rejecting the free gift of grace that was accomplished on Calvary's cross. Good place for an amen. Amen. And it's this, you know, um, it is the most famous verse in the Bible, but it explains Christianity. God's the initiator. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You ever have a teacher say, I want you to write what you did for your summer vacation in 25 words or less? (laughs) John 3.16 has 25 words. And it describes the whole gospel. 
in that one verse. The disciples wanting to figure out what their job was in all this, in John six twenty nine, they came right up to the Lord and said, Lord, um, what must we do so that we can do your works? And John six twenty nine, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, period, 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 period. That's it. My job is to believe in the finished work. And when you do that, Here's the wonderful thing. Um, the joy that we read in, uh, in, the, in the psalm this morning, and it led to want to express through music and playing instruments and singing and being happy. When the Lord said, you'll know the truth and it will set you free, this is the truth. Because it doesn't have anything to do with me. And because it doesn't have anything to do with me and the work is already done, that makes me free. I can't add to it and I can't take away from the perfect work of the cross. So that's the difference between it. Chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, these are Jews, but they have Babylonian names. Remember, they've been in Babylon for 70 years. And we read, when the people sent to Sherezer with Regem Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord, and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord, um, and don't get confused because um, here um, they're coming down from Bethel to Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. And to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophet saying, should I weep in the fifth month? It's going to be the fifth and the seventh month, actually, as I've done for so many years. So evidently, while they were there, they put something upon themselves that the Lord did not ask them to do. And that was, they decided that they were going to fast in the fifth and the seventh month. Uh, These men have come down to Bethel to speak with the priests in the temple. They have come with this question. The question has to do with a ritual. Is a ritual right Or is a ritual wrong? The people had begun to fast before the Babylonian captivity and had continued to do so in their captivity. But God had never given them fast days. What the Lord gave them to do was to honor seven feasts that he said you shall do annually, like Passover and Pentecost and Sukkoth. So there were seven of them. And um, they were to be done annually so that they would never forget that God had delivered them and brought them out of bondage into this uh, this place of a milk, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we remember the work of the Lord, you know, first Sunday of the month by taking communion. If you were a Jew, the Lord told them that they were to keep the feasts. If you were a Jewish man um, of age, you were required to be in Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot. That's why they were always going back and forth to Jerusalem. Now, God had never given them this, but they set aside these days of weeping and mourning during their captivity and they continued it, 
But God had not blessed them, and a certain amount of prosperity had come, and many of them were building their homes and getting very comfortable, even affluent. Yet they're weeping and mourning, uh, and they said, we've been doing this, but God hasn't blessed us. So the question here, is it right or is it wrong? And they wanted to find out. We've been doing this on the fifth and the seventh month. Is this ritual right? Is this ritual wrong? Which leads us to a teaching of how to pray, when to pray, how to fast, and when to fast. And we will go right to... Um, Uh, do we go, let's see. No, we go to 4, 6 before we go to Matthew. So let's read verses 4 through 6. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the peoples of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months during the seven years, did you really fast for me? Question mark. For me? And when you eat and when you dr- drank, uh, did you... Eat and drink for yourselves. What was your motive? Why did you do this? Let's turn with me to the book of uh, Matthew. Ooh, you're going to do some page turning this morning. Matthew chapter 6. I want to hear those pages turning. And the Lord actually addresses both of these issues. In Matthew chapter 6, he's going to deal with the... uh, hypocrisy of prayer, and the right way to, way to pray. So in, uh, we're looking at verses uh, 5 through 8 of Matthew 6. The Lord says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, I want you to go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And when your Father who sees in secret has rewarded you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetition, as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So prayer wasn't to be followed by the way the religious hierarchy was praying. Now I've told this story before, but maybe you didn't hear it. It was in Israel a couple of years ago. And we were going down to the Wailing Wall. And off to the side, they have a special place that the Jews have their prayer books and um, they'll be praying in there. They very much get into it with their with their prayers and, and their prayer books. And um, one of them pulled me aside, and he pulled me into this back room, and he says, what's your name? And I told him, he says, well, can I pray for you? Well, I could turn on prayer, sure, go for it. Well, he started praying for me and my job and, and my friends and my family, and he just kept going on and on and on and on. And amen. And so I said, amen. And I said, I, Lord, I just... Pray that you bless my friend who, who was kind enough to, to pray for me for, for just doing it. And I said, okay, thank you, thank you very much. And I began to walk away. Well, he followed me out, and he says, well, you know, um, 
we have this program right now that we're, we're actually needing, needing some finances for. <laughs> so, you know, I, got a, I caught him real quick, and I said, no, thank you, and I didn't give him a chance to say another word because he was using the Lord, you know, to make a buck off of a rich American tourist, except he didn't know I wasn't rich. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of them get sucked into it. The Lord says, don't do what they do because their motive. It's just something that they've learned, and they repeat it repetitively. And when you do that, you lose the heart of what you really want to pray about. And so don't use vain, repetitious prayers. I mean, our Father who art in heaven is a great prayer. And the Lord, it's, the, it's, the, it's not the Lord's prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. But um, when we pray, like on, on Saturday morning, we have specific, we are told to pray one for another. So the way we do it on Saturday morning, I, can't, I don't pray for myself. Who's ever sitting on my right-hand side, that's who I pray for. And then when it's his turn, he's going to pray for that other person. Men ought always to pray and never to faint. Here it says to go into a closet. Well, this is one-on-one. But it also says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, and they pray, I'll hear. And um, so Jesus is teaching there on prayer. Let's go into fasting. This was the issue those returning from Babylon, they wanted to know about. So chapter 6, verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. With a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly." So here, we're told when it comes um, to fasting, I had a, um, well, was a couple of years ago, I don't even know who the person I was with, but I was hungry. I said, let's go get something to eat. And he says, no, I'm fasting. Oh, wow, I'm impressed. I didn't say that, but I thought, wow, this guy's fasting. That's, that's impressive. And then he says, yeah, I need to lose 20 pounds. <laughs> Okay, so you don't, uh, the, the motive uh, was not the motive that, that we have um, biblical fasting. I want to talk a little bit this morning about biblical fasting. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Why do people fast? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me draw your attention to verses 1 through 5. This involves um, um, marriage and principles and why we should be married. And let's pick it up in verse 1. It'll explain itself. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, is it good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, 
Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And let the husband render to his wife the due affection affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he says, do not deprive one another. Um, Do not deprive one another. And then it says, except with consent. So they agree for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we're talking about um, something that's pleasurable. Uh, God is the one who invented sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. He goes as far as to say, be fruitful and multiply and make sure that... um, that you're intimate with each other on a regular basis. Don't withhold yourself from one another. And then he throws in this exception. But he says, now there's a time when I want you to deny this pleasure. In this case, it's sexual activity. In other places, it's food. uh, Where you deny yourself, as Jesus did. He didn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights. So the idea, fasting is denying your flesh of food and sexual pleasure for a time so that you can really get down with some serious time with the Lord. What does fasting accomplish? The flesh is weakened during this time and your spirit is strengthened. Let's say you have a big decision to make and um, both of you are aware that this, this This is a life-changing decision we're making here. Uh, We might have to move, honey, I'm not sure. Or maybe we're buying a house or is it something that you want to see the the hand of the Lord in this? So what do you do? You set certain things aside and you give yourself and say, Lord, I'm going to stay in this place until I hear from you. Uh, Let me give you an example by going back to the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Just a couple verses. Come on, everybody, all those pages, I want to hear them turning. Daniel's not that hard to find. So in Daniel 10, we'll just read the first three verses. He's about to receive one of the most important revelations in the Bible. But there's spiritual warfare going on to get this message to Daniel. Daniel is used to praying and having his prayers answered. Chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth. He was fasting. Nor did I anoint myself at all till the whole three weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was by the river, and we have the rest of the story. My point in this is there was something that Daniel wanted an interpretation from. He wanted God's will, 
and he was expecting to hear from the Lord. And the reason the prayer wasn't answered, if you go down to, well, I'll explain the rest of the story. In heaven, there's spiritual warfare. An angel was dispatched to minister to Daniel his prayer request at the same moment that he prayed. But the prince of the king of Persia, a heavyweight demonic angel, withstood him and wasn't allowing the message to get through. So um, the Lord sends Michael, I believe one of the archangels, and um, he took care of the prince of Persia, and the answer to Daniel's prayer was given. Here's my question. What if after two days, Daniel stopped fasting and praying? I wonder what would have happened. We don't know. We can only speculate. So why do, or why would you fast? Why would deny yourself three squares a day? Why would you deny yourself sexual intimacy with your wife? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 says, do it for a time. And so that you can give yourself to the Lord, the flesh is weakened, the spirit is strengthened, and you're more in tune. And then afterwards it says, but only do it for a time and make sure that you come back to, together intimately so that you're not tempted by the, by the devil. So let's go back to Zechariah. Their question was, should we fast in the fifth and seventh month? And in verse seven, the Lord rebukes them because they were doing it with the wrong motive just as that Jewish man praying for me by the wailing wall had alternative motives for him praying for me. Now, Verse 7 says, Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? In other words, why didn't you listen to Jeremiah? Why didn't, why didn't you turn away from your idols? Why wouldn't you listen to them? Why did you listen to the false prophets instead? It's because it's what you wanted to hear. It was for yourself. And you weren't doing what you were called to do. You were called out a peculiar people to worship the Lord your God. Instead, you turned to these idols. Jeremiah rebuked you. And you wouldn't change your heart. And you continued in it, so I spanked you. And I disciplined you. And for 70 years, you were in captivity. Just as the people should have listened to Jeremiah... We as believers, James one twenty two says, when we read this book, we're supposed to let it in. Um, James one twenty says two twenty says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, I went to church, I listened to the study, and then I I went on, and it's back there somewhere. No, go and meditate on it. You know, there's that word selah in the in the Psalms. We read it, and then we go, you know what? I'm going to take a walk today, and I'm going to say la on the morning's message, or I'm going to say la on my morning devotions. I'm not just going to read it, okay, done, on with my day. No, but actually chew on what's being said and digest it. Not just being hearers of the word only, but doers. First Samuel 15, Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I would say here to obey is better than fasting. And to heed uh, then the, the fat of rams. What the Lord wants is a humble, obedient servant. I have a simple question for you. I'm not saying the Lord is calling you to do this or that or the other thing. The question is, are you available? Are you willing? Are you willing to say before the Lord with an honest heart, Lord, I don't have a clue what you have for me, but I want you to know I'm available. So if you want to use me for this or that or the other thing, do you have the willing heart that just says, yeah, Lord, I want your will to be done and not mine. That's being uh, um, not only a hearer of the word, but also a doer. They should have listened to Jeremiah. But they didn't like what he has to say because it wasn't very positive. All right. Um, let's go to verses 8 through 10. Um, chapter 7. Repent. So far we got um, the rebuke of their hypocrisy. Now in 8 through 10... The, the encouragement to repent of their disobedience. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I want you to execute true justice. I want you to show mercy and have compassion. Everyone to his brother. I don't want you to oppress the widow or the fatherless. I'll come to that with, in, in the New Testament in a bit. The alien or the poor. And let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Um, Philippians tells us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. And the fact of the matter is, we like to be number one. And to put somebody else above me and consider them before me, is um, a work of the Lord. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God. You want to know what religion is? Well, here Jesus says, real religion before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Paul said to Timothy, be a good soldier and don't get entangled in this world. We've got to be here, right? And it's um, going downhill. But it, the Lord is saying, just don't get all so wrapped up in it because we're just passing through. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we're pilgrims and strangers, and as we sang, this world is not my home. And when we forget this, we get all hung up and caught up in and, and all the things that we think are so important that are going to pass away. So the re- Turning, these returning from Babylon added outward religion by fasting on the fifth and the seventh months, adding to the word of God. And what did God do? He rebuked them for it. He said, you guys should have never been there in the first place. If you would have listened to Jeremiah, I didn't want to discipline you. Not willing that any should perish. The Lord is good. It's the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance he says, but if you want, you got a free will, you want to be stubborn, I can deal with that. I can take you to the woodshed. And for 70 years he did. 
So when they come up with their made-up religion, well, we're doing this and this and this and fasting, I'm not impressed. Well, who are you doing it for? You're doing it just for yourself. So he reproves them openly, and God rebukes them for it. It was an outward religious act, not serving out of love, and adding to the word of God for their own self-righteousness. This is called hypocrisy. And I suppose if it's one thing that Jesus could not handle, it was a hypocrite. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 23, and we'll look at mild-mannered Jesus as he addresses uh, the religious hierarchy. I want to read the whole chapter. I won't. I will read selective verses to make the point. This is the Lord addressing religiosity. And in Matthew 23, we'll start out by reading 1 through 7. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do and observe, that observe and do it. But do not do to according to their works, for they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens on people, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move more than one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now a phylactery is a piece of leather that they wrap around their arm when they go to to the temple and they also have a a box where it says to put the word of the Lord on your forehead and they take that literally and and um, because they want they want everybody to see that they're observant observant Jews verse 5 but all their works they do to be seen by men oh we read that they love the best place of, of the feast and the best seats in the synagogue, uh, greeting in the marketplace, and they love to be called rabbi, rabbi. And um, let's go from there to verse 13 and 14, because pure religion is visiting and helping the widows. But here we read, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. I would have loved to have heard the tone of voice <laughs> to be there and actually hear the Lord lay into them. What was the volume level? For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Neither you go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What? Religious leaders actually stopping people from going to heaven? Yeah. When you add to or take away what the word of God has to say. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make a long prayer. In my case, it was for uh, money tents. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one uh, proselyte, and when he is one, you turn him into twice as much the son of hell as you yourselves. Let's go to verses um, 
23, because I can't hit them all. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you, t- you pay tithes of mints and anise and cumin. In other words, they, they were into tithing to the point when it got to their vegetable garden and they went to the mints, they go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those are mine. Ten, this one's yours. So they were bragging about even tithing down to the, the smallest degree um, and, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done. The Bible, Jesus is confirming tithing, but when you give, he says, do it in such a way that, that people don't know and only the Lord knows. You ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Just three more verses, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of these also um, will be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy, and lawlessness. Is that laying into them? And when it's all said and done, uh, the point that I'd like to make here is he wanted it to sting and he doesn't back off from it. He says, well, there's a couple good guys in there I know about. There's Nicodemus and there's going to be Joseph of Arimathea and those guys, but doesn't mention them here. And the reason he is so upset, and the reason we should be upset with religion, is you can be called Christian and not be born again. Mm. Good place for an amen. How many people do we know that really believe God judges on a curve? I'm good enough. I'm not as good as Fernando. He's better cooked than I am, as far as I know. Everybody knows that. But God isn't judging that. He's judging whether or not I'm placing my whole hope of salvation on the work of Jesus Christ. But these religious Pharisees saying, oh, no, 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 no. The first big blowout that they had is in Acts chapter 15. Gentiles were getting saved. And they had to have this big council meeting. And when they all came together, they said, yeah, they can be born again and saved, but they got to keep the Sabbath, and they got to get circumcised, and... And uh, Peter said, ho, ho, ho. And Paul said, ho, ho, stop, 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 stop. So they had to discuss this whole thing. And uh, they wrote a letter and said, we're not going to put those burdens on you. We're not gonna, we see what God did by saving Cornelius and his grace. So we're not going to add on extra things that you can't do. And by the way, our fathers didn't do them either. And so it's possible by religion to keep people from actually entering the kingdom of heaven, thinking that they are going to make it by somehow being righteous. 
When my Bible says, and Paul says, in me dwells no good thing. Boy, do I love to hear that. It just makes me feel warm and goofy all over the place. Nothing? Nothing. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. My heart, I have a good heart. I'm a good discerner of music, and I appreciate the arts. That's good. No, it's not. There's nothing good in you. Well, what's the standard? God. Perfection. As long as just being Fernando. One of us might come out of a winner. But when I put my light and I say it, it has to be holy for the Lord is holy. In other words, I have to be good as God. And Paul said when it came to judging himself, he says, I'm not going there. He says, I'm not going to judge myself. My flesh is so tricky that I'm not going to go there. That I'll let the Lord be the judge. And he'll be the one. That's why Matthew 7, this is the one verse that really does apply uh, where it says, judge not and you won't be judged. And where that, what that means is, I don't know your motive. I don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it. But someday at the great uh, judgment seat of Christ, he will be the one who will determine why I did what you did for the Lord And if it was with the right motive and the right attitude, you will receive an eternal reward that doesn't fade away. I saw somebody, I knew it was coming out, and I can't tell you who was donating it. It was a check for like $5,000. And they had the cameras rolling, and the check, of course, is this wide and that long. And they wanted everybody to know in the world that this organization had given $5,000. Well, guess what? They got the reward. Now, if they would have been smart about it and would have wrote that check and said, you know, don't let anybody know where this came from and did it that way, well, that changes everything because now the father who sees in secret is going to reward them openly. So this type of rebuke here in Matthew chapter 23 is straightforward. There's no words of encouragement after it. That's an important point. Paul did the same thing to Peter in the book of Galatians. Okay, Bible turners, here we go. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians, the first pope, blowing it big time. Galatians 2, picking it up in verse 11. Uh, Peter's in Antioch, and Paul's already there. Pick it up in verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, in other words, the Jews, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, or the Jewish people. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. They were following Peter's example. So that... They even that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw it that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, what's that? Well, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither free nor slave. The playing field is even because all are sinners. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles, and not as a Jew, 
Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified, saying it this morning, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we also are fallen sinners in Christ, therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Talk about putting a guy in his place. (laughs) And he did it in front of all of all of them, so Peter's hypocrisies trickling all the way down to Barnabas, um, Paul rightly so um, openly corrects him. There's a proverb; it's not in my notes. It says, "Open rebuke is better than a secret love," and we're going to uh, give an example of that uh, in just a little bit, where open rebuke is better than a secret love. Now, um, in Zechariah 7, is about being corrected. As we go, try to keep our Bible study in context here, what is chapter 7 about? Well, they're being rebuked for adding on to something that God didn't institute. And he rebukes them for it, and he leaves the sting. He wants it to sting. However, now, if you go back, chapter 7 is the sting chapter. Chapter 8, where, where we had our text reading this morning, it's completely different. In other words, after the correction, he leaves sit for a while so they can think about it, but then the Lord comforts them with what's going to be in their future. Let's just read the first four verses. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. For thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand because of their great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I could read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter is one now of consolation. Even though they had sinned, he is giving them hope. And he's giving them something to look forward to um, rather than hanging 
on their inefficiency, as it says in Romans 8.1, after Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from myself? And then we have Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Therefore, there is some condemnation, right? No. Therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of Christians aren't free. They blow it. And they, they hang on 1 John, verse 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. But the devil's not going away with that. He said, he's on your other shoulder. You can believe that? You, you hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian. This is where you got to put your feelings over here and stand only, let me say it again, stand only on the word of God that trumps any feelings that you have. Poor pun with our president, but there it is anyway. Trumpet. <laughs> Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation. You cannot beat up yourself for a sin that you confessed. But the devil is not going to let you off the hook on that. So what do you do? You stand on the word, and that takes priority over your feelings. And if you do it, it will set you free. And there won't be any condemnation. You know what it produces? Boy, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, that you're that gracious, because I know me and the weaknesses of my flesh, and you know you and your weaknesses in your flesh. And without grace, it's not happening. The boldness to stand up and speak boldly would not be, and could not be here outside of the grace of God. And so chapter 8 is now a reassuring, comforting chapter of hope. I mean, there's hope for me? Yeah. Um, we have an example of this sting that has to remain before it can bring about hope. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for this one. I want to hear pages turning, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The ruins of Corinth are still there. The Corinthian canal is worth seeing. We didn't go up to where the temple used to be, where they would have many, many temple prostitutes. Very promiscuous city, to say the least. And it was to the Corinthians what had crept into the church in chapter 5. I'll read verses 1 through 6. There was a problem. Everybody knew about it, but nobody wanted to deal with it. Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up and not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And then Paul's writing this letter. He says, I'm not there. I'm absent in body but I'm present in spirit, and I've already judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is where this verse comes from. There was a guy in the fellowship sleeping around, and people knew about it, and nobody was doing anything about it. And Paul says, I will. And the most loving thing that Paul could have done at this point is to turn this guy over to devil and to do what? Pray for the destruction of his flesh? Kick him out of church? Yep, that's exactly what he was told to do, and they did it. And gang, it was the most loving things that Paul could ever do. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 6, if you just turn the page of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he was deceived. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God or go to heaven? Do you not know that neither fornicators nor adulterers nor idolaters, well, this guy was an adulterer, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covets, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What's, what is this saying? It says, don't be deceived. Because he was doing this, going to church, he actually thought he was going to heaven. He wasn't. And so what's the most loving thing to do? <laughs> Give him back to the world for a while. Sin is hard. And so he's kicked out of the fellowship. And that had to sting. Amen? I mean, it had to sting. He's called out, and he's kicked out. All right, so the sting... Um, and the good news is, turn now to Second Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul shares his heart when he had to do this. He didn't want to do this. So in Second Corinthians 2, picking it up in verse 4, he's talking about the letter that he wrote concerning this man who had committed this sin. And now you get Paul's emotional how he felt when he wrote it. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. I love this guy. I don't want to see him go to hell. But if anyone has cause to grieve, he has not grieved me. But all of you, to some extent, I don't want you to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one would be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Imagine this guy repenting, and now he wants to come back to church. And the people are going, oh, there he is, or there she is, oh, second class. Boy, I hope you learned your lesson. He says, no, 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 none of this second class Christian stuff at all. Matter of fact, this should be our attitude. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken by a sin, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
considering yourself lest you also be tempted. My hero, David, committed adultery, covered his tracks by killing Uriah the Hittite. Yeah. If it can happen to David, it can happen to me, it can happen to you. So, his words, the punishment accomplished what Paul set out. It brought forth godly repentance. But now he's talking to the choir, to the church. You guys, I want you to go out of your way. Say, hey man, let's go out, have some coffee. Um, Love on him. Make him feel more loved than even somebody else because of what he's gone through. Because again, the devil will be there reminding him of his sin. The scriptures are clear here. Paul says he wept about this whole thing. He was grieved. But question, was it the most loving thing that could be done? Absolutely. Why? So that, as it said, so his soul could be saved. Implying what? That his soul wasn't saved if he continued doing this sin. Do not be deceived. Promiscuity today, people think nothing about sleeping around. Christian or non-Christian. It's become so much a part of our our culture. It's crept into our school system. And now even um, teaching, oh boy, I better make a sidetrack here. You'll be here till noon. And um, how it must grieve uh, the father's heart that these little ones are being manipulated by saying, well, are you sure you're a boy? Are you sure you're a girl? Are you sure? And, um, you know, the Lord has words to those teachers or those that pass such rules and laws. He says, anyone that causes one of my little ones to stumble, uh, it'd be better for them on judgment day that a millstone be put around their neck and drawn in the deepest sea rather than stand before me. We had little Amory in a, in a prayer room this morning with Joshua. Bethany's about ready to give birth, so she's at home. Hi, Bethany, praying for you. And she is just so cute, I want to just take her home. <laughs> she's just that so innocent. And um, there's such an innocence and purity when you're at that age, unpolluted. And godly parents that are bringing them up in the right ways. And there's a sweetness to it that um, the Lord says, you mess with that, buddy, and you're messing with me. You you teachers that are involved with stuff like this, you better repent. That's all I can say. You better repent because you're going to stand before a holy God someday and you're going to have to give an account to turning these little hearts and minds away from the Lord. So now, it just doesn't, you need to understand, uh, let's turn to Hebrews, that correction and rebuke is just part of being a Christian. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and now let's involve all of us. Hebrews 12, picking up in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says, I believe it was Paul, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Now he's talking to Christians. You're a son of God. And then he says, my son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. 
And don't get discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure the chastising, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? But if you are without chastising, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate. You're not a son. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastise us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous, who likes to get rebuked. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, and to those who have noticed been trained by it. Trained by what? Getting corrected. When you quench the Holy Spirit that you repent of it. And it's a process, it's ongoing, that if you're a Christian, you need to know you're going to get spanked from time to time. Amen? I remember the first time Dad laid into me. I, was, I got to that point where I was taller than my mom. I've told this story before. And she told me to do something. I said, no, I don't have to. I'm bigger than you are. She didn't say a word. She just turned around and walked away. And then I started talking to Dad when Dad got home. And um, my dad uh, took me upstairs and um, corrected me. (laughs) And after I was done being corrected, he said, if you ever speak to your mother like that way again, I will kill you. (laughs) Well, he wouldn't kill me, but I got the point. Well, he did it because he wasn't going to have a son who was going to disrespect his mother. And uh, those kind of corrections you remember. If you're a Christian, you are not exempt. You're going through the sanctification process, and that involves being corrected when you do something wrong. Good place for an amen. It's part of it. The gospel is all out there today. It's all about you. How to be a better you doesn't deal with the um, being times where you have Bible studies about being taken to the woodshed and being corrected. How are you going to respond? Pout, take your balls. Well, I wouldn't be Christian anymore if he's going to spank me. You know, that's not what I signed up for. No, you're a son. And if a father corrects his son, how much more our heavenly father is going to correct us? Now there's a therefore. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. So the therefore is important. You know, just don't go moping around. The Lord doesn't love me anymore. No. Strengthen, realize this this is necessary and that it proves. If you're getting away with sin and you're not being corrected by it, I'm questioning your salvation. Because every son whom the Lord loves, he corrects. So 
This morning, let's begin to wind this thing up by turning to um, exhortation, where the first part of it was dealing with with uh, correction. I want to deal a little bit with false doctrine. So go, we, I'm turning here because it was part of men's prayer yesterday morning. First John uh, chapter 4, if you want to turn it. Otherwise, I'll just quote these verses. We went through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Jude. Yesterday, a man's prayer, what a blessing. But in 1st John 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit whether they are of God's, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So doctrinally, we can talk about fasting. What's the right and wrong way with that? In Jude, it says, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found that it was necessary to write to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all to all the saints. Why? Because certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for his condemnation. They're ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it could simply be saying that they added to the finished work by adding rituals and man-made requirements, replacing grace. Um, And then Jude goes on and gives three examples of people who are going to face God's judgment. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Well, what did Cain do wrong? Well, he killed his, his brother. He was a murderer. Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, Jesus said if you have hate in your brother, in your heart, you're a murderer. And um, you all know about Cain and Abel and how you know, life progressed from them. Uh, Cain killed Abel. People always want to know, where did Cain get his wife? And I always tell people, well, I I would tell you if I was Abel. (laughs) You know, I'd I'd tell you if I was Abel, but I'm not. Okay, then a second example, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. The prosperity doctrine. People who are actually out there using the gospel for their own financial gain. And he's saying, these guys are going to be judged because their motive was for money. And they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Well, what was Korah's problem? Moses, who do you think that you are? You think you're the only one that God talks to around here? And God had called Moses. But Korah led a rebellion. And he said, God talks to me too. So I'm going to form my own little group and and um, you're not going to be the only one who's in charge around here, Moses. And he led a rebellion. So Moses falls on his face and says, Lord, what do, what do I do with this guy? He said, tomorrow, get up, draw a line. So everybody wants to be the core, go over there. And everybody wants to stay with you, stay over here. And I'll take care of it. So the next morning they got up, drew a line. Okay, who agrees with uh, Korah's decision to be in rebellion and take on his own leadership role. Over here, so a whole bunch of people go over there. 
Um, those who think that God has called Moses to lead, you go over here. And then he said, okay, Lord, if um, you didn't call me to lead and you want Kor to, to lead, and, but if you want it to be me, then why don't you just open up the earth and swallow up everybody who's with Korah? No more are the words out of his mouth, and the earth opened up and swallowed up Korah. Rebellion is as much of a sin as greed for profit or murder. Now, the one who wrote this is Jude and um, James. You know that they were both half-brothers to Jesus? And James, not Peter, was the first pastor in the Jerusalem church. It, they had to have this discussion about what are we going to do with the Gentiles. It was back and forth conversation. Everybody had their chance to speak. But when it came time to make a decision, it wasn't Peter who stood up. It was James, a half-brother of Jesus. Peter was not the first pope. James was. Okay? Now, there's a reason I'm telling you this. Because, now turn to Matthew 16, and um, we are really finishing up here, but I want to make this point. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to say something that I hope stuns you. Okay, in, in Matthew 16, we're up at Caesarea Philippi, and um, people make the assumption that Peter was the first pope. And they get that from these verses here in chapter 16, verse 18, when the question was asked, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we find that in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. The word there is uh, um, Petros. And on this rock... A different word is Petra. I will build my church. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, this is their slam dunk scripture that the keys of heaven have been given to Simon Peter and that he is the foundation that the church is going to be built on. Not true. What the Lord is saying, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, Petra, Gibraltar, Jesus Christ. Remember the stone not made, that smashed, and uh, he is the rock of our salvation. It's Jesus that's being referred to. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not just saying that to Peter. Well, how do you know? Because if you turn the page of chapter 18, he says um, exactly the same thing um, to all the disciples. 1818, assuredly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, let me take it a step farther. You know that the Pope can't forgive sins? But I'm going to tell you something. I can. I can forgive your sins. Hold it, Dwight. Where are you going with this? John 20, verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, how can I forgive sins? Well, my job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain the gospel to you, and you say, yes, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I say, let's pray. And we pray, and he asks Jesus, or she asks Jesus into their heart. I can look at that person, and I say, your sins are forgiven. Did I, did I forgive their sins? No, I preached the gospel. What does the Pope preach? He preaches the Eucharist at an altar. And only he or a priest can forgive your sins. And it has to be done on a regular basis. Mary found this on the line, and we've been passing it around the office this week. I can't help but putting it up on the screen as we read these verses. At St. Peter's Church, this is what it looks like. No S. I couldn't... Let's face it, it's been a heavy Bible study. Ain't Peter's church. No, it's the Lord's church. And I want you to know, and I charge you, that you are to speak as the oracle of God with boldness. And when you tell a person that um, their sins can be forgiven, You have that authority. Not only that, you have a mandate and a command from our Lord and Savior to do just that and do it with authority that you say your sins can be forgiven. Of course, I can't forgive anybody's sins, but he lives in me and I know the gospel and I can tell that person if they prayed that prayer, great things are going to happen to you. And in the next verse I say, terrible things are going to happen to you. (laughs) You have any idea? Let's count the cost here. Let me warn you what's going to happen next. Because angels are rejoicing right now. Your name's just been put into the book of life. And that's over, worth rejoicing over. But the problem now is you have two natures. A spiritual nature where God actually comes and lives and dwells inside of you. But I still got this rotten, crummy flesh. That's at war with the spirit 24-7. That's one of the reasons you fast. It weakens the flesh, but it strengthens the spirit. So the world, let's go back and close with our text. That was all introduction, by the way. Now I can give my Bible study. Just kidding. In chapter 8, what do we have? Well, we have words of comfort. After what? After getting thoroughly spanked. It stung. They were rebuked. And then you have chapter 8, which is all promises and hope of a kingdom that's coming, that the Lord is going to establish. And now, 
um, in closing, we'll close with our, with our text because this is yet our future. Why is it the Jews are despised and hated? Answer is because of the apple of God's eye. And in these verses here, it tells us that that always isn't going to be, be the case. Let's read it again, verse 20, chapter 8, and we'll close with this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to the other, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of every nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man and say, can we go with you? For we have heard that God is with you. God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through Zechariah. And I pray as we learn about correction and difference between um, man-made religion and Christianity that we can understand a simple gospel. So bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.